This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Today, I'm talking to Bruce Iglauer, who founded the Alligator Records Blues label in Chicago in 1971 when he decided to release Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers by one of his favorite artists at the time, Hound Dog Taylor. That release established the aesthetic for Alligator, which Iglauer explains on the Alligator website. He wrote, when I created Alligator Records, the very first promo piece to promote that very first Hound Dog Taylor album was headed Genuine House Rockin' Music. That became our slogan, and we wear it proudly today. Genuine, because the music we record is deeply rooted in the blues tradition, even when it pushes the standard definition of the blues, and is created by musicians who have honed their songs not on synthesizers in their bedrooms, but in front of real audiences responding to the emotional needs of their listeners. House, instead of theater or arena or stadium, because our music is ultimately intimate, even when it's big and loud. It's not meant to be presented, it's meant to be shared between the musicians and the audience, like everyone at Florence's shared the music with Hound Dog Taylor, and rockin' because it's designed to move you. The music on Alligator doesn't all come with distorted guitars, buzz, and drive like Hound Dog Taylor, but you can usually hear the common thread between such classic Alligator artists as Coco Taylor, Sun Seals, Shemika Copeland, and Albert Collins, and more recent signings including Selwyn Birchwood, Chris Stone Kingfish Ingram, and Tenonzo Cannon. Iglauer has been thinking about those connections these days because this year is the label's 50th anniversary. To commemorate the occasion, Alligator has released 50 years of genuine house rock and music, a two-record or three-CD collection that presents the label's past, present, and future. It's out now. I'm talking to Iglauer because over the course of 50 years, Alligator released three Christmas albums. The Alligator Records Christmas Collection from 1992 and Genuine House Rock and Christmas from 2003. In 2015, Alligator released A Blues Christmas with tracks cold from those two compilations. Both hold up well, and the 1992 album belongs in the collection of anyone who wants anything more from their Christmas music than the hits. I go hot and cold on the blues, but I love this album because as Iglauer promised in his mission statement, these songs rock. Iglauer has also been celebrating the 50th anniversary with a number of media appearances, and he had planned on a sort of Alligator All-Stars tour to showcase the label, his vision, and the artists who are important to it. But the Delta variant has made that impractical. That's where we're going to start today, with Bruce and I talking about COVID and how it and the Delta variant is impacting musicians on the Alligator roster. It's easy to think about music this year and think about how COVID affects major tours and festivals. Artists who earn their living one night and one club at a time are having a tougher go, particularly older ones with the compromised immune systems. Rather than start with a few minutes on another of my Christmas favorites, I'd rather give Bruce a little more time to talk about the reality of musicians and labels' lives during these times. And we'll drift into our conversation about Alligator's Christmas music in good time. We'll start with a little Hound Dog Taylor since Alligator did. And we'll be back on the other side with Bruce Iglauer.
well, I normally refer to them as highway bands. Right. And, uh, you know, in Ed's case, of course, he would have gotten a plane to come down there. But normally, you know, they're driving from gig to gig. <clears throat> and it's already been hard enough because uh, weekday gigs dried up. You know, and, and, you know, you have a couple of nights off during the week and you just, uh, you lose, you know, the motel gets all your money. Yeah. So Ed, you know, I'm, Ed and I are, are pretty close. In fact, I'm, you know, pretty close with a number of the musicians on the label. You know, we, I'd like to refer to Alligator more as a family than as a label. And, uh, you know, everybody knows how to reach me at all times. And they do. Uh, and Ed, you know, it's just, it's just been so hard for him. And he's 66 years old now, you know, when he, when he joined the label, he was, uh, it was 35 years ago. So right. you know, it was, it was a, a big deal for him you know, to go from working in the car wash to working, to recording and touring. Um, and, and now it's like everything that he's, he's put into this is, is going away as he gets older and is less able to drive, you know, 300 or 400 miles from gig to gig, if indeed the gigs exist. Are we already recording? Or are we about to be? I, I said the I went and once we started talking, I went ahead and kicked the recorder on because I think this is stuff That's that I think fine. is of interest. And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, this is part of what interests me about Christmas music is how it fits into musicians' lives and how it fits in not just, you know, not just into the Christmas season, but how it fits into you know, their business and everything else that they do. And so, you know, that the, the lives of musicians and how they make money is completely, I think, of interest. How, how musicians get to get to keep working? You know, like I think about like a, you know, a band around here, you know, they're, you know, they may be able to like take a pay cut or something, but someone like, you know, but bands that are touring and who have been doing this for years, it's like, you know, Ed's got to get a certain amount of money to pay the band. Right. And being a sideman is is terribly difficult. You know, almost all blues bands are structured as leaders and sidemen. Interestingly, Ed's band isn't. They actually do a percentage split after certain expenses. So, but almost everybody else uh, is leaders and hired sidemen. And living as a sideman, you know, self-employed sideman, uh, with you know no benefits, no insurance, no retirement, no job security is tough enough already. But if suddenly you're expecting to get two hundred or two hundred fifty dollars for a gig, and you're gonna uh, you're being told, well, you know, there's social distancing, so if they're limiting admissions, so we're playing for less than regular money. You're gonna get one hundred twenty-five. You know, how do you live on that? Your rent doesn't go down. Your grocery bill doesn't go down. Uh, it's so it's it's very very difficult. You know, Alligator has struggled through this last year and a half, but we have a catalog and we have a worldwide market and, and uh, you know, it's, it, we've had to do some belt tightening, but we've survived, uh, you know, no, and, and nobody has, you know, been kicked out of their home or, or uh, you know, missed a, a whole lot of meals. But with the artists, you know, very few of them own homes, uh, you know, they rent. Uh, they have landlords to deal with, just like anybody else has landlords. Uh, and they don't have, you know, many artists I know don't have any real money in the bank. Yeah. It's one of the things that's really scary, and we're obviously watching it here in New Orleans, that how many people really can't, you know, 
you know, all this reveals how many people are living so close to the edge. And, you know, if, you know, the system is just not made, you know, we built a structure that's not made to have this kind of a shock to it. And, you know, so many people around, so many musicians around the country are in the same position your, you know, your, uh, you know, your label, your artists are, you know, who's some, I'm sure people are out there driving Uber and Lyft that we don't know about and figuring out how to, you know, how to, you know, how to keep it together and how to, how to keep playing. Right. And, and you have to wonder at this point, as we seem to be going into pandemic part two, uh, what, how many venues are going to be open? You know, if, if, if things shut down in the fall and winter uh, and, and the Delta variant peaks in November, which a doctor friend of mine told me is what they are, are anticipating that after that, there will be enough people who have had it or are vaccinated that we will return to sort of a version of herd immunity, uh, that maybe things will be opening up again in the late winter and spring. But how many, how many clubs can afford to be closed for months and months? You know, there has been some government help for clubs very late. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I, you know, I think that the gigs are going to dry up as well, even when artists are able to tour again. So it's, we're not going to return to what it's been. I'm uh, over 70 now, as hard as I find it to believe. And I'm very cautious about going out. Uh, you know, I went, I went to a gig last Friday with Rick Estrin and the Nightcats uh, at, at Space in, in Evanston, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. And they're checking vaccination cards or recent tests. And even then, they're, they're strongly suggesting that everybody be masked even if they're theoretically, uh, you know, not, not dangerous. Yep. Uh, and, and, and I felt more secure than normally, but then Saturday night I went to an outdoor gig, just a little, a club that has a patio with a, with a tent roof over it. And, and I was the only masked person in the place. Yeah. And I, w- I was, you know, there are probably a fair number of people who are vaccinated. There are a lot of people, you know, who were not kids but it only takes one. Yeah. No, I'm in the same place. In my case, also, I have a uh, have an eight year old daughter, and since she's not vaccinated yet, we're I have to be very co- very conscious that I can't bring it home. Right, and and one of the things that's true for the musicians is that they're not really in control of what safety standards are being imposed at every gig, and you know you pretty much can't get up there and sing or play a wind instrument uh mask right. you know uh so and you're so you're going to be inhaling yeah. and you're going to be inhaling whatever is is thrown at you to inhale um i went to a gig wow way last spring uh, i guess not long after the pandemic started and and people were coming up to buy t-shirts i was helping the band and and they were breathing in my face while I while looking through the t-shirts. Ugh. So, have you had anybody on the roster uh, contract COVID? Uh, I've had one artist contract COVID and one staff member. Luckily, neither case was at all serious. Uh, but you know, could have been. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, there may be people who had it who literally didn't know they had it because at the beginning. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who got mild symptoms and thought they had colds or, or you know, other sorts of respiratory illnesses rather than COVID. Sure. 
Uh, now, I guess the, the uh, new variant is uh, can be even more virulent for people who aren't vaccinated. Right. Or maybe I should rephrase that for idiots who aren't yeah, vaccinated. Exactly. <laughs> so this is not for the... idiots who want, who want to make their children sick yeah. <laughs> and make their parents sick and make complete strangers sick. You know, I really at this point with the with the unvaccinated people, the adults, I mean, yeah, who are choosing this. If they got sick and died and didn't infect anybody else, it would be very hard for me to feel any kind of sympathy. Yeah. Uh, you know, there may be some people who have just been horribly misled. But at this point, you know, we have millions and millions of people in this country who have been vaccinated. And to the best of our knowledge, nobody has died as a result of the vaccination. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so if your choice is, you know, maybe you have some side effects and, or get sick and die, it's not much of a choice. I've grown to enjoy living. It's, it's, yeah. My preferred <laughs> choice, you know, and, and, you know, death, when death happens, I'll be annoyed. Yeah. Uh, but I certainly see no reason to rush toward it. <laughs> I can't imagine this is how you plan to spend Alligator Records 50th anniversary. No, I expect, expected to put a tour on the road with multiple artists uh, and a bus and, and try to play some big venues and, and have some celebration. We've had great media coverage. I have to say, you know, uh, being on, on NPR, uh, which happened actually on, I think, the 20th anniversary as well, was, was, was pretty wonderful. But it doesn't immediately give help to the artists. Sure. And, and ultimately, the label isn't about me. Ultimately, the label is about the musicians. Right. What strikes you when you look back at your catalog? What jumps out as either like a source of pride or what do you, you know, do you, do you see a common thread when you look back, when you look at the, uh, at the body of work that you've released? Well, when I started Alligator, I didn't know the word branding. You know, I, I didn't know anything about marketing. <clears throat> I basically made it all up. I never, never intended to be a businessman or uh, a promoter or a, a radio promotion man or uh, a publicist, none of those things. But I thought, I'm going to make a record, you know, by Hound Dog Taylor, by my favorite band. And hopefully people, some people are going to love it. And then what I want to do is I want to make the next record so that the people who love the first one will love the second one. And the people who love the second one will love the third one. And sometimes I push the envelope a little bit, but it's always been about music that resonates with me. And I'm, you know, I'm a blues geek and, uh, and proud of it. And, and so I'm fine with music. I, when, I was, when I started, I was pretty much a purist. But these days, I'm fine with music that feels like blues, that has the emotional effect, the, what, what I like to call the healing feeling that blues gives you. But it doesn't have to have... 12 bars and three chord changes to go ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. You know, uh, in fact, when, when blues was first being created, or at least in early recordings of blues, structures were very variable. You know, there, there were people who, who literally stayed on, on one chord for the whole song. John Lee Hooker being a good example, yeah. or Charlie Patton in some cases. There were people who played a whole lot of chords. There were people who played you know, regular rhythms. And there were people who played, you know, rhythms that seem weird to us now. 
one of the things that has been true for blues in general through all the decades is it was created fairly, partly for people to, to have a sort of an emotional bonding and community bonding and community healing. But it was also created as a party music and, and people were supposed to dance to it. So when B.B. King was recording Shuffles in 1952, songs that went ba 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 that's because his contemporaries were dancing to Shuffles. But now, you know, literally 70 years later, we have most of your, at least your local neighborhood blues bands, you know, the, the people we call Weekend Warriors, who are still writing songs with that same rhythm and the same song structures. And the reality is that you got to have a lot of gray hair or a lot of no hair mm-hmm. to know how to dance to ba bump ba bump ba bump ba bump So why aren't blues artists writing songs that are rhythmically accessible to younger audiences? Um, you know, there's, I, I, you know, I admit that I have no aesthetic for hip hop. Sure. You know, I, um, but people know how to dance to hip hop. So why aren't blues artists adopting those rhythms? Even if they keep the 12 bars and the three chord changes that are so traditional, why aren't they adopting the rhythms that would make the music familiar or accessible to 18 year olds? Sure. I don't get it. Um, it's like where people are determined to walk into the museum, get up into the exhibit and stand there frozen for the rest of eternity. Ah, 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 ah. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you're standing next to BB King, he's already, he's already done that. Great. Yeah. You know, you're not going to beat him doing that. So don't try oh. be inspired by, you know, when I, I've often said when Muddy Waters came to Chicago, he was inspired by Sunhouse and by Robert Johnson and by a lot of guys he heard in the Delta, but he didn't go to Chicago and say, I'm going to try to sound exactly like Sunhouse. Right. He thought, I'm going to get this electric guitar and I'm going to sound exactly like Buddy Waters. Right. And, and, and I'm going to have Sunhouse's inspiration, you know, in, in, as part of my DNA, but I'm not going to duplicate what's been done. Right. And, and blues has become, way too much of of a museum piece in this regard i don't want the music that i love frozen in amber sure. i want people who, are, who aren't born yet to feel this music you know blues is a blues is a magical music because it was created by this one group of horribly oppressed people you know black people in the south in the era of you know the post-civil war era of of sharecropping and uh, situations where they they were just trapped at the bottom of the economic scale with almost no way out in, in virtual slavery. And they created this music as a community music for them to, to share, to feel as though they had, had a bond between them or express that bond, to party to, and the stories that helped them get their troubles out to squeeze. I talk about getting squeezed like a wet sponge, you know, it hurts while the squeezing is going on and then you feel better afterwards. (laughs) So they create, so they created this music to deal with their specific emotional needs. And yet somehow you can go to Japan where almost nobody speaks English and perform a blues song. And the audience at the moment of the greatest lyrical 
intensity at the peak of the story, not of the solo, of the story, will stand up and applaud or stand up and yell because somehow or other, this music with its tension and release is something they can feel even though they don't know the, the words, even though those aren't the rhythms they grew up with, even though those may not be the chord changes they grew up with. So this one group of people, you know, and these oppressed people in the United States created a music that speaks to audiences all over the world. And that's pretty magical. My mission now, 50 years in, is to uh, to nurture those artists who are trying to create blues that speaks to today's audience and tomorrow's audience, both lyrically and musically. And, and that means, first of all, I have to have big ears. I have to be able to hear something that doesn't sound like B.B. King or Muddy Waters. Uh, and then the artists have to have big imaginations. And, you know, there's when you're when you're a blues artist, there's a lot of financial security relative to the financial security of music at all in being a cover band. You know, if, if, if you're in Chicago, we have a lot of blues tourists, or we did before the pandemic and they don't want to hear your original song. They want to hear Hoochie Coochie Man and you can make a living. In fact, there's a club in Chicago that gives artists a list of songs that you can do whatever else you want tonight but yeah. you're going to do these songs and they're and you know what wow. the songs are they're stormy monday yeah. got my mojo working sweet home chicago hoochie coochie man you know you yeah. you, you can you can yeah. pick them it's it's no problem and so the artists are making a living being cover bands right and and they're accepting that they're doing this so the motivation for saying i want to make an original statement in the blues isn't very great uh you kind of need to have a record company because otherwise you're going to be attempting to make your original statement and sell it to an audience of people who are maybe not expecting your original songs and who are drinking and talking and being a bar audience, you know, and not sitting respectfully and listening to every lyric. Uh, and you're probably singing through a lousy PA system where you can't understand every lyric anyway. Um, so when I find an artist, you know, like a Selwyn Birchwood from Florida uh, or Toronto Cannon from Chicago, um, or even uh, a more traditional band like the Cashbox Kings who are taking very traditional blues styles and writing more contemporary lyrics to them. Now, I want to encourage that. Uh, you know, uh, Selwyn wrote a few albums ago was writing about police brutality before Black Lives Matter and not specific to black people, but just specific to police being out of control. Uh, the Cashbox Kings wrote a song um, well, a couple of songs. They wrote a song about a corrupt cop who's, who ended up in prison who tortured confessions out of people 
in a basement of a police station on the south side of Chicago and sent black people to jail for murder who were innocent because they were terrified that they were going to be killed by this cop. Uh, and then they wrote a song that they it was on their last album called Blues Band Next Door, in which the singer, the, the band is racially mixed, but the singer's black. And he wrote about, you know, you, you, you come up to me after the show and you tell me how talented I am and how great I am and how much you enjoy me. But what if I moved in next door? Ah. You know, how would you react then if I wasn't an entertainer, if I was just the same nice guy and your neighbor? Right. Would you, would, you, would you embrace me in the same way that you come up and shake my hand vigorously at the end of the set? Oh, that's great. Uh, and, and, and it's a good question. Toronto Cannon, who's a, a guy with uh, both a lot of insight and, and a, a great sense of humor, uh, on his last album wrote a song about health insurance, in which he's an uninsured guy who's you know, desperately trying to break the aspirin in half. So, uh, uh, <laughs> and and at one point he says, you know, you, I need a cat scan. I I can only afford a kitten scan. Uh, uh, <laughs> but in the middle of the song, it, there's a there's a the bridge is about a guy whose spouse dies, and he loses his home paying the medical bills. Right. Do you remember when Alligator got to a point where? you could say to somebody, go with that thought? Because, you know, because I'm sure, or in the early, obviously, in the early, when you started, first off, it's you're kind of living record to record, and you're starting with Hound Dog Taylor, and you're starting with people who are doing, you know, a kind of, you know, who are doing a pretty good, you know, rock and, rock and blues. And, and at some point, you know, and so at some level, you, you know, there's a point where not necessarily the covers, but it's not, not necessarily people doing the standards, but there's a point where people were doing what blues fans expected to hear when they went to hear or see a blues band. And I wonder if there was a point when you realize that the business is strong enough, the label's strong enough, where you could say to somebody, yes, tell me that story. Yes, tell me, you know, tell me these stories about how, about how your life is right now. Well, usually I'm following the directions of the artists. Uh, now, when I choose an artist to sign an artist to Alligator, I mostly am signing artists who are mature artists. They may not be old, but they're mature artistically. So they have their own vision and they know the kinds of stories they want to tell. And when I'm choosing to sign them, I'm kind of saying, okay, these are the stories that I know come with you. But as early as the third album that I recorded with an unknown you know, and, and I love bringing forward unknown musicians with an unknown musician named Sun Seals, who had just moved to Chicago from from Arkansas and couldn't even fill the little joints on the south side. Uh, and uh, when I first saw him, was playing on a borrowed amplifier because he couldn't afford an amplifier with a Montgomery Ward Japanese guitar. Wow. Uh, but I, I heard something and and when when I, he showed me his original songs and he had a bunch of them, he wasn't performing them, but he had a notebook full of them. One of the songs that we chose to record on the third album that I did starts, if I can remember it right, the, the little bee sucks the blossom, the big bee gets the honey. I do all the hard work and my boss makes all the money. Ha, ha. <laughs> yeah. ha, ha, ha. And, and 
And, uh, you know, I, I appreciated that he wanted to make a social statement. Right. Now, this happened to be, it, it, it was really a statement about getting out of that economy and moving to the city. You know, so not so much about condemning the boss, but the, the fact that the boss was evil was kind of a given. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't need to express it. Everybody understood it. Right. But, but uh, you know, I've been happy to record socially conscious songs, but not a lot of my artists have been happy to write them. Sure. Uh, and, and of course, not all my artists are prolific writers. Some of them are interpreters and adapters. Um, Shamika Copeland, who is, I think, without question, the great female blues voice of in the world right now. Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty pretty much sure that anybody who knows anything about blues would, would put her in that category. Um, doesn't write much at all. But over the years, I first recorded her when she was 18. Wow. Uh, and, and was, you know, I talked about mature. I first heard her, really heard her when I was 17, when she was 17. I, I, I was, I felt like I was 17, but I wasn't <laughs> 17. Uh, and, and I thought if I closed my eyes, I wouldn't know this is a, a 17 year old girl. I would think this is a, an adult woman who's lived and been through it and has some emotional scars and singing from life experiences. Uh, and in fact, some of the songs she was doing were from life experiences, but she's never been a songwriter. But over the years, she's developed, and especially since she became a mother, has, has developed a, a, a very strong social conscience. So especially for her last three albums, uh, she's been singing a number of songs about what's going on in the world. Uh, there's On her last album, there's a song about gun control. That'll get you in a lot of trouble in this country. Yeah. Uh, there's a song about about uh, uh, equal rights for gay people, uh, and told in the form of a story, not sure. you know, not a, not in the form of preaching. Right. Um, and uh, there's a there's a song about the the left right split and the you know the virulence of the left right split in this country, which is a begging for people to figure out what they have in common. And and uh, the 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 lead song is a song about the last slave ship that came to the United States just before the Civil War. Did an artist point the way to your uh, first Christmas album, uh, Alligator Christmas Collection in 1992? Um, there wasn't a single artist who, who led me in that direction. Honestly, it just, I had known there were other blues Christmas records and of course many uh, various types of music Christmas records. And I, I thought, well, I've got this wonderful roster of artists and maybe we can find a, you know, an audience for them that wouldn't be their normal audience. So, uh, you know, I just approached artists and usually what I said is you're already going in to do a record. So why don't we include a Christmas song that we can use on this, this Christmas collection that I'm planning. And, and for the most part, the artists either found, I mean, there are blues Christmas songs already, Charles Brown, Freddie King, you know, there are a number of artists who've recorded blues Christmas songs. So some, some artists covered those and interpreted them. And some artists wrote new songs. Um, Shamika's team of writers wrote a wonderful song called, uh, a wonderful sexy Christmas song called Stay a Little Longer, Santa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, 
you know, and uh, with Little Ed and the Blues Imperials and I, I'm a, I'm a very occasional lyricist. Uh, <laughs> wrote, <laughs> usually when I'm a lyricist, I'm, I'm like the closer. I'm the guy they bring in in the ninth inning, right. you know, to just wrap things up at the end. I don't create the song. I just, I just, uh, you know, help them finish it. Right. Uh, but, but he did a, a fun little song called, you know, I'm your Santa. I'm coming to town. So open up your chimney and let Santa slide on. Down. <laughs> and, and, and performed it with all the, you know, silly sexiness that, that uh, is implicit in the, in the lyrics. of fun doing these sessions you know and sometimes of course we're we've recorded these songs you know months and months before christmas right uh sometimes just after christmas right uh and and but the artists uh have enjoyed you know getting out of their usual box of what they what they sing about um and and i've given the artists a lot of i i should say maybe i i encourage the artists to just express themselves the way they want to express themselves. I haven't, haven't given much direction. Um, so a few artists have done, have done uh, serious songs. I mean, Sapphire, the Uppity Blues Women did a song called One Parent Christmas, you know, uh, which is a sad song about the subject that, that you would know from the title. Sure. Uh, but mo- most of them, uh, you know, have taken it to do some, taken the advantage of doing something lighthearted and fun. Right. You know, one of the things I think is interesting, I think people often miss, is that, you know, blues Christmas songs are in, are, are in such a strong lineage that, the, you know, the lineage of, Chris, of blues Christmas songs goes back farther than, than, than pop Christmas songs. I, you know, at, uh, San, uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, I think, is the first pop one released. It was recorded in 34, I think. And like Leroy Carr's Christmas in Jail goes back to 1917. And uh, Bessie Smith at the Christmas Ball is 1920. So that that history of of, uh, blues singers, blues musicians, you know, finding and finding, I mean, singing about their world, including things like their holidays is a, you know, that that's a really long tradition. There's a longer tradition of that than than others. Good point. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But of course, the other thing was in, in the oppressive society we talked about where blues was created, Christmas was universally a day off. And, right. and it wasn't unusual for the big boss man to give something, you know, especially something to eat to the families who were sharecropping so they could be, you know, benevolent before they cheated them out of the profits on the cotton. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, but you know, everybody remembers Christmas fondly. Um, even, even if all they got was, you know, a piece of fruit. Right. Were all the musicians that you got for the session, got for these records, were they sort of equally willing and interested in making a Christmas song? 
Were there some? Well, certainly nobody. Were there some who were reluctant? Objected. No, um, nobody objected, um, and uh, you know, almost almost all the people who I've recorded over the years have come from uh, a Christian, you know, a Christian background. Uh, you know, as versus being Jewish or Islamic, for example, um, and and so you know, Christmas was part of their culture growing up. Uh, so. So, you know, anybody I approached was, was fine with it. And, you know, of course, <laughs> you know, I do pay musicians when, when they record songs. So there may have been that motivation as well. Right. As it turned out, the, the first Christmas collection we did um, did quite well. And the artist did well with royalties. Um, the second one, not, not quite as well, maybe because we had... We had, uh, you know, made the original and the the second one, the genuine house rock of Christmas, though I think it's equally good, wasn't filling the, uh, a niche that was completely being empty for alligator consumers. Sure. So it didn't do as well, but did okay. Yeah. Uh, and and the artists again have gotten into royalties, um, and uh, you know they're always happy for that. I just, I've literally just finished uh, doing. 500 royalty statements. Wow. Because I'm personally involved in, in making sure those happen. Uh-huh. So, and one of the ones I did, two of the ones I did were for Christmas records. Wow. And, and so I, you know, I'm very aware of what the artists are making and it isn't a ton now because those are old records, but there's still profit in the, in those. And in the case of the song I wrote with little Ed or little Ed wrote with me or whatever, we, he and his brother, the bass player and I, sat down and wrote it together in about 15 minutes. Uh, uh, um, it got into a movie. Oh, great. Uh, it's in a movie uh, with a Christmas theme, actually, called While You Were Sleeping uh, with Sandra Bullock. It's it's now mm-hmm. kind of a classic. Sandra Bullock and and um, um, what's his name? Bill Pullman, right? Yeah, yeah, Bill Pullman. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a fun little, little movie. Uh, and Way in the background of the Christmas party scene, if you listen very carefully, you can hear Little Ed and the Blues Imperial. Oh, that's great. Ah, ah, ah. And, and those BMI checks just keep coming. What can you tell me about uh, Katie Webster's Deck the Halls with Boogie Woogie? What do you remember about that recording? Well, we recorded it in New Orleans. We recorded it in ultrasonic with David Farrell Engineering. Um, and Katie at that time was was living in, in California. But, of course, she had grown up more in the Bayou country than uh, than in New Orleans. But she was very you know comfortable and felt very much at home in New Orleans. Um, I, I think that because she was such a great boogie woogie piano player, I think that that the idea of doing a Christmas song as a boogie woogie might have been my idea, but I don't think I suggested what song. Just 
you know, is there something, is there a Christmas song? You could make it do a boogie woogie. And that was the one that she picked. Katie had so much fun recording. I mean, Katie just had this huge smile on her face on pretty much every occasion. Uh, and, and she was just, she was happy. She, you know, she was being treated well, you know, David Farrell, uh, I can, he, he was, been one of the great roots, roots music engineers in this country, you know, hundreds and hundreds of recordings, uh, mostly at ultrasonic. And, uh, and so it was sounding good in her headphones and in the playbacks. And I think she did it in two takes, three wow. takes, uh, you know, it was a solo recording. So she knew what she was doing. Um, you know, with Katie, I, I haven't listened for a long time, but I'm guessing that the song speeds up as it goes along because <laughs> pretty much all of her Woogie Woogie songs did. And I'm okay with that. You know, there are a lot of people who, who just think the beat ought to be incredibly steady, but you know, the first artist I recorded was Hound Dog Taylor and every song that he did speed it up as it went along because right. people were dancing. And so of <laughs> course, you know, you want to have people dance more energetically. Um, you know, and, and I, I'm fine with it. That's just playing in human time instead of in, in machine time. You know, I, I, I dislike recordings that are done with click tracks to make sure that they are perfectly, there's the perfect space between each uh, uh, quarter note or e each backbeat. Yeah. Um, you know, that's not the way our bodies are, are built. If you listen, listen to your heart, if you put your hand on your heart, it's not going one, two, three, four, it's going ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. So B.B. King could dance to it. Right. So, so uh, you know, I, I, I let things like that go. I don't worry about that. I worry about the spirit of the performance. And, you know, Katie, Katie was, was such a warm person. And also, I have to say, an incredible flirt. <laughs> and, and and amongst the many people she flirted with, I was a, a I guess you'd say a flirty, ah. uh, you know, and, and uh, she, you know, she would, uh, you know, bat her eyelashes, you know, and, and, uh, you know, smile that little crooked, you know, aren't I cute smile. And, and of course it was all completely manipulative because that would be, you know, I want to do the song in a different key. So I'm going to talk <laughs> you into it by doing that. You know, I think when I think of Katie, you know, and I miss her all the time, um, you know, it just she was just such an incredibly warm person um, and and funny and just full of good spirits. I remember on her 20th anniversary tour, um, she would she did her set, her little set by herself. She did a solo set and came back and played, you know, with with the whole band at the end um, and the finale. But she would often uh, uh kick off her shoes and, and be barefoot on stage. And sometimes she'd come down and sit on the edge of the stage and just talk to the audience, uh, you know, about why she wrote a song or something that happened in her past. And, and she was completely spontaneous about things like that. Oh, that's uh, yeah, it really was. Um, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to record uh, a number of Louisiana musicians over the years, Professor Longhair being the most, the most immediate, obvious well-known choice, uh, Katie, Kenny Neal, C.J. Chenier, technically from Texas, but a Louisiana-rooted musician, um, and uh, Marsha Ball, who's, uh, I guess we'd also, say a Gulf Coast musician. Yeah. yeah, born in Louisiana. 
and, and gate mouth. That's, uh, I, I was and, about to ask you about gate. Yeah, no, I didn't produce gate. Jim ah. gate, gate and his manager, Jim Bateman produced gate. Those records came to me as finished masters, but you know, gate mouth is the huge American music hero uh, more so than, than people realize because his influence has been so great without it's necessarily being recognized as his influence. But, you know, he was the guy who basically took the, the completely revolutionary style of, of T-Bone Walker and supercharged it. So, so in many respects, he was a very early rock and roll guitar player. Right. Uh, and, and a guitar hero. Uh, and, and he would, he would, immediately say, oh, I'm not just a rock and roll musician, or I'm not just a blues musician, or I'm not just a jazz musician. Right. Uh, you know, he, he took pride in, in, in playing anything and everything. But of course, he played guitar, he played mandolin, he played harmonica, he played piano, he played drums, um, and very all of them very well. Yeah. Um, and, and he was just, just the crankiest guy in the world. You know, uh, he, he would, he would, uh, uh, kind of cuss people out and, you know, uh, give, give a lot of people a hard time, but boy, he was, he was always nice with me. Yeah. I always, he always, he always treated me right. He came, I remember, you know, my office is in Chicago in a, in a building that used to be uh, a little, uh, two, a storefront with two apartments overhead. And so, uh, I, you know, my, my, uh, office is, the living room of one of the apartments and uh in there i have a couch and every once in a while i take a nap on the couch so i remember uh a, a day when i was asleep on the couch and there came a pounding on the door of my office and a voice said open up it's the sheriff <laughs> and 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 i opened the door and it was gate mouth right and he had just he had just come to you know, to, to give, kind of give me a friendly hard time. But Gabe Mouth told me that, that Alligator was the first label where he ever earned artist royalties. Wow. And, and he got checks from us. And, uh, and I was proud to send him. And the idea of having Gabe Mouth on your label, boy, that's an American music giant. Christmas time and I'm telling you the truth This is Christmas time and I'm telling you the truth Christmas was made for all people not just me and you When I listened to his uh, Christmas on the uh, Christmas album Oh it, it, right it, it sounds like he's almost making that song up on the fly Yes, it sounds that way to me too. Now that was just again like his albums that was delivered to me. I didn't have any sure. input into that song, um, and and I'll be honest and say that you know it's perhaps not the the songwriting gem of of, of that <laughs> collection, but you know it's full of his personality. Part of what's interesting about this stuff, and and one of the things I was kind of kind of hinting I was asking earlier, is is as you say, some people were probably recording because there was a check in it. And some people were doing it because they could, because they had an idea or it sounded like fun to them. And, mm -hmm. and I hear Gates 
and and I and actually I really enjoy it. But part of what I enjoy about it is that it feels like he's probably not. He's probably a lot more interested in the in the check when this is over than he is in the song itself. But he's so naturally talented, and he's so in, so invested in whatever he's doing that he's not going to go out there and suck. And so, even if he's winging it, he's still going to wing it at a level that, like, I want to go back to and hear it some more. Uh huh. Absolutely. I mean, the you know, with when you have a talent that large, you know, you even even if you're not taking yourself very seriously at any moment, that talent still comes shining through. Well, it's hard. It's so Making Christmas all alone. It's so hard making Christmas in a one parent home. My money is tight, but not so tight as my time. Try Dozens and dozens of clubs, I remember, that some of which were not music clubs for long periods of time. You know, so much of the Chicago scene was basically storefront bars, uh, you know, bars that would have a band one week and not the next week, uh, that didn't have a stage where somebody plugged the mic into a guitar amplifier and that was the PA system. Right. Um, and, and sometimes the the atmosphere of those clubs was just so much fun, so warm and friendly. You know, I remember going into Florence's Lounge where I first saw Hound Dog Taylor for the first time in January of 1970. And, you know, it was this outside club. It was uh, a, virtually everybody in the club was African-American. Um, and it was Sunday afternoon. So a lot of people had come from church, you know, and they were in their church clothes. And, uh, you know, other people were more casual. Um, but people were just, it was, it was the day off, you know, tomorrow they'd have to go deal with the boss man again. Right. You know, and, and they'd have to worry about the fact that they weren't living in much, much comfort or security, you know, that, I mean, this was, this was the ghetto. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but they weren't there to bemoan that fact. They were there to, be with their friends because the same people came back to that club week after week and um, to just let their hair down, you know, um, uh, uh, Hound Dog and the band were excellent at alcohol consumption as well as being <laughs> excellent at music. <laughs> and, and their audience tended to follow in their, in their footsteps. You right, know? Right, so, yeah. so, so there was plenty of alcohol being consumed, not the least of which was being consumed by me. Right. Um, you know, I was inspired by the band and, uh, and I, it's hard, you know, when, when you're in an audience, even an audience like Tipitina's, and Tipitina's is a fun club, to have that same feeling of, of intimacy and looseness 
that I saw and and was in the midst of. You know, once people figured out I wasn't a cop, they weren't bothered uh-huh. by the fact that, that there was a white guy in there. You know, right. um, you know, because I was clearly enjoying the music and not bothering anybody. Um, and friendly, and occasionally I'd buy somebody a drink, so that was an extra bonus. Right. Um, and and um, but you know they were there to celebrate their community. They weren't there because I was there at all. And, and being in those audiences is a, an experience that you can't reproduce in a club full of of music tourists, no matter how much they love the music. Yeah. No, I get that. And and you know there was I said there was very little point in in blues artists being uh, doing a lot of original material. And I remember when when you know Hound Dog tended to do his own songs, but when somebody like Magic Slim would sit in and do a BB King song, people would holler because they remembered the song from ten or twenty or thirty years ago. You know, maybe when they were living down south, and it it resonated with them. It was more than just a song. It was a whole flood of memories. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, people would stand up and women would stand up and wave their arms like they would in church, you know, and, and, and it was, it was a different, a different and uh, experience and an experience that pretty much is gone now. Sure. Um, because it was such a neighborhood and community experience. And I was lucky enough to be there in the years when blues was still, uh, uh, you know, contemporary music on the south and west sides of Chicago. Yeah. Well, Bruce, I think we're in a really good place. And uh, but I want to finish up let's finish, with one more uh, from the uh, from one of your Christmas albums. Okay. Is there is there a Christmas song or an artist that you remember a good story with, or that you that it feels like we can't walk away from a conversation of Alligator's Christmas music without talking about? Well, you know, I was very close to Coco Taylor, who uh, had the first song on both our Christmas records, The Queen of the Blues. Uh, we worked together for 35 years, and she wrote both the Christmas songs uh, that that she recorded for those albums. was not a, a prolific songwriter. So whenever she wrote a song, you know, she'd want me to come down to the house to hear it. Oh, that's great. Uh, and, and, and Coco was doing well enough. So she actually owned a house. Uh, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't a renter. And I just remember the pride with which she presented those songs to me and, and how much fun she had doing them in the studio because she knew in her head exactly how she wanted them to sound. Coco wasn't an instrumental player at all, but she could sing parts to people. And, and, and so, you know, I remember, I just remember her instructing the band and singing, getting the tempo right. And, you know, Coco didn't have any concept of overdubbing, you know, I mean, I, I got her to do it, you know, from time to time, if we had a great track and, and the vocal wasn't as good as, as the, 
the, the track, you know, her voice was tired or whatever. And Coco recorded well into her 70s. So, uh, you know, her voice did get tired after a while. Um, and, and so if, if it wasn't going just right, she'd just wave it to a stop. You know, she just stopped the whole band. She never think I'm going to come back and, and sing it a little better. If she wasn't satisfied with her singing, she would stop the song. So, you know, I remember Coco just being, you know, really the lady in charge on, on, on both those songs. Um, so either, either of the Coco songs is fine with me. Thanks to Bruce Iglauer for the time and the talk. You can find all the music we've talked about today at the Alligator Records store at alligator.com or wherever you get your music. If I were you, I'd get them from the site to make sure that the money actually gets to the label and the artists. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, you can find me at Facebook at 12 Songs of Christmas or by email by writing alex at myspiltmilk.com. Com. Thanks to AF the Naysayer for our theme music, and thanks to you for listening. We'll finish today with one more from the Alligator Records Christmas Collection. Here is harmonica player Charlie Musselwhite's version, A Silent Night. Talk to you next week.